You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Once again, this day we take our reading from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 44, the first eight verses, and our New Testament reading is from Colossians 2, 6 to 15. We begin then with Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 1 to verse 8. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come, yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Then we turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead, And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in the last question and answer of Lord's Day 27. Question and answer 
74. And there the question is asked, should infants too be baptized? Yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them, no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be grafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. Let's also turn to Article 34 of the Belgian Confession on the Sacrament of Baptism. There it says, We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood that one could or would make as an expiation or satisfaction for sins. He has abolished circumcision which involved blood and has instituted in its place the sacrament of baptism. By baptism we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. This serves as a testimony to us that he will be our Father, our God and gracious Father forever. For that reason he has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with plain water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by this he signifies to us that as water washes away the dirt of the body when poured on us, and as water is seen on the body of the baptized when sprinkled on him or her, so the blood of Christ by the Holy Spirit does the same thing internally to the soul. It washes and cleanses our soul from sin and regenerates us from children of wrath into children of God. This is not brought about by the water as such, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, which is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is the devil, and enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. Thus the ministers on their part give us the sacrament and what is visible, but our Lord gives us what is signified by the sacrament, namely the invisible gifts and grace. He washes, purges, and cleanses our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renews our hearts, and fills them with all comfort, gives us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothes us with a new nature, and takes away the old nature with all its works. We believe, therefore, that anyone who aspires to eternal life ought to be baptized only once. Baptism should never be repeated, for we cannot be born twice. Moreover, baptism benefits us not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our whole life. For that reason, we reject the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism received only once, and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. We believe that these children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant As infants were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises which are now made to our children. Indeed, Christ shed his blood to wash the children of believers just as much as he shed it for adults. And therefore they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them. As the Lord commanded in the law that a lamb was to be offered shortly after children were born. This was a sacrament of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. Because baptism has the same meaning for our children as circumcision had for the people of Israel, Paul calls baptism the circumcision 
of Christ. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, we are called to deal this afternoon with what for some of you is a painful subject. You have family, you have friends who do not agree with you when it comes to the proper recipients of baptism. You believe that believers and their seed ought to be baptized. Some of them, however, believe that only believing adults should receive the sacrament. And still others believe that while infants and children cannot be baptized, they can be dedicated. And obviously there is division and disagreement here. And that always hurts. So you ask, why deal with it at all? Why not simply ignore this whole matter altogether? Why not avoid what hurts, what causes disagreement? Yet that would, in one way or another, be an abdication of responsibility. In the first place, we would then be bypassing what we consider to be the very clear and obvious biblical teaching. We understand this has everything to do with how we read, interpret, and understand the Holy Scriptures. It has everything to do with the unity of the Word, the importance of the covenant, and our view of the Church of Christ. In the second place, if we ignore this teaching, we would be negating what we confess together. Verse 27, question and answer 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism is quite upfront, as you heard, and detailed in this matter. And the same applies to Article 34 of the Belgian Confession. So you can say, confessionally, too, we are committed. And in the third place, to gloss over this matter would also be to send a message to all of you, especially to our young people, that this really is a matter of no importance. But it is, as I just mentioned. And it's also important because of how we view our relationship with God, how we view and approach our children, and even how we regard the matter of Christian education. Now, beloved, in saying all this, I'm not saying that this is a salvation issue. Indeed, I'm not aware of any Reformed theologian, past or present, who would say that those who deny infant baptism cannot be saved. But still, it does have an impact on what we believe, and as well on how we live our lives. So, beloved, let's turn to this sensitive matter now, and I preach to you on the theme, what should believers do with their children? Deny them, dedicate them, or baptize them. Well, let's begin this time with a little historical overview. When we do that with the matter of infant baptism, we see that from the early centuries to the 16th century, the Christian church was united in its view that infants needed to be baptized. Parents would take their infants to church either sooner or later. 
and requests that they receive this sacrament. However, in the 16th century, a new reform movement arose called the Anabaptist movement. And members of this movement insisted that this age-old, centuries-old practice was really unbiblical. And indeed, they declared that infant baptism was invalid and that all who considered themselves to be Christians had to be baptized again. They needed to undergo what was called believers' baptism. And as for the children of believers, they could and should not be baptized until such a time as they too came to of age and profess to be believers. Now, beloved, why did this new position or opinion arise? It has to be said that it has much to do with the corruption that had crept into the medieval Roman church. By the 16th century, Rome would baptize anyone and everyone, believer or unbeliever alike. And in addition, Rome taught that baptism dispensed special grace which could really and actually wash away your sins. And that's also a question and answer 72 and 73 are refuting in this Lord's Day. And needless to say, this lack of discipline in the church and this stress on magical baptismal power did much to weaken the church. And so we can say that in terms of any number of criticisms of the church, the Anabaptist movement was correct. And yet, as with most reform movements, there was also an element of overreaction. Yes, and that also happened with regard to baptism. Instead of reacting properly to the heirs of the Roman church, those of Anabaptist persuasion went too far. In the first place, the Anabaptist movement took a very biblicistic kind of approach. In other words, show me a text, any text in the Bible, or I will not believe it. Where does it specifically command me to baptize my children? You see, instead of looking at Scripture as a whole and as a unity, they divided it in two. The Old Testament, which they said no longer applied, and the New Testament, which they said was very, very applicable. And instead of studying God's dealings with his peoples throughout history, they and the Bible, they rejected what he had done in the Old Testament and concentrated exclusively on what they considered to be his dealings in the New Testament. In addition to becoming biblicistic, those in the Anabaptist movement also insisted on redefining the church. You see, for them, the church was no longer the covenant community of God. No, the church was changed into a regenerated community into a believers-only community. Only believers really belong. Only the born again have a place here. Only the adult baptized are standing. In short, you can say they diverted from the biblical model 
And what is that model? Well, you read it everywhere, for example, in the Old Testament, but to be specific, look at the book of Deuteronomy. There Moses addresses the whole Israelite community, young and old alike, healthy and handicapped, on the plains of Moab. And you'll notice as he is speaking or as he is preaching, he addresses them all to be part and parcel of the people of God. Turn as well to the epistles of Paul and Peter and John. And how do they address the local churches to which they're writing their letters? They speak to all in the local church. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be holy, to the saints in Ephesus, to God's elect strangers in the world, to the chosen lady and her children. They addressed all. All in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, did that mean that all of those who were standing there on the plains of Moab listening to Moses and those who were reading the New Testament epistles, that they were all redeemed? No. That's also why Moses, toward the end of his long oration, speaks about blessings and curses. That's why Paul and Peter and others warn those who are in the church but not of the church to repent. They all belong. They all have standing. They all have rights and responsibilities. How they respond, however, to the promises of God in Christ Jesus will determine their salvation. So who belong to the church? Believers and their seed. Then, as I said, those of Anabaptist persuasion deny this. Their answer is, only believers belong. And as for their seed, they do not belong and they cannot really belong until they believe and are baptized as adults. In short, in churches of Baptist persuasion, children have no official place and no true standing. And now you will understand that that position is not without its problems and not without its tensions either. My experience is that any number of people will really and readily argue and defend the Anabaptist position, but that when they marry and receive children of their own, the discomfort level starts to rise. Many of these parents cannot accept the position that their children have no real place in the church of Jesus Christ and that they cannot be considered members of the church. They feel that this leaves their children in no man's land. And they're right. So what do they do? 
Well, they offer something that is relatively new in the history of the Christian church, and that is called infant dedication. It's a ceremony in which parents of Anabaptist convictions take their children to church and dedicate them to the Lord. Such parents stand before family, friends, and congregation, and they make serious promises about what they will do for their newly born son or daughter, how they will pray for him or her, teach him or her from the scriptures, model the Christian life before him or her, and so forth. Why, it's almost, it's almost like baptism, many say. The only difference is that no water is present, And no sprinkling happens. And as a result, some call infant dedication a waterless baptism. But is that the only difference, beloved? Is the main thing that sets, is this the main thing that sets it apart from baptism? Well, I would say to you there is something else, something deeper, something more disturbing, and it is this. When a child is dedicated, the parents make promises. And that's good. But God is silent, which is not good. Dedication at bottom is a ceremony in which God is said to be making no commitment to the child. He is, as it were, on the sidelines. He is at best watching in the wings. He makes no promises at all. Now, there have been some attempts to give some biblical underpinnings to the ceremony of infant dedication. Some refer to what Hannah did with respect to Samuel and how she dedicated him to the Lord. The problem with that is that the vow which she makes is a Nazarite vow, as you can read in 1 Samuel 1 verse 11, and thus very specific and specialized. Others refer to Luke 2, the verses 22 to 24, and the presentation of Jesus in the temple as an illustration of infant dedication. But yet that too is problematic, seeing that Mary and Joseph here were meeting the requirements of the Old Testament law relating to purification and the rights of the firstborn. In short, beloved, there is no proven case of infant dedication in the Bible. And all this has led James Brownson to write in his book The Promise of Baptism, and I would recommend that book to you very highly, The Promise of Baptism by James Brownson. He says, first, as a halfway measure, infant dedication conflicts with the theology underlying both believer baptism and infant baptism. And secondly, he says, there is no meaningful scriptural support for the practice of infant dedication. And third, he says, and he writes, when the emphasis in infant dedication fell, falls on the vows of the parents, 
The implicit tendency is to blame the parents when children do not profess the faith for themselves, rather than to call parents to deeper trust in and reliance upon God. And fourth, he writes, with little precedent in church history and no clear scriptural warrant, infant baptism or infant dedication should be discouraged. But then, beloved, if the adult baptism-only position is an overreaction, and if the infant dedication position is to be discouraged, where does that leave us? Well, it calls on us once again to examine the infant baptism position. And I would say to you that it's a position that's rather clearly and succinctly spelled out for you in question and answer 74 of the Catechism. And notice what it says. For openers, it states, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant. In other words, it is declaring that both adults and infants live in a binding, living relationship with God. Or even more precisely, that believing adults and their seed live in covenant with God. Now on what is that based? It's based on the testimony of Holy Scriptures. And notice, not just New Testament testimony or Old Testament testimony, but both. You see, underlying this whole conviction is the assertion that there is one God, one people, one book, one salvation. And that what we have in the Holy Scriptures of God is one unfolding story which stretches from Genesis to Revelation. And what does it say in that one unfolding story? It says that the children of believers are special. Ages ago, God came to Abraham... I made a covenant with him. You find that in Genesis 15. Did he make a covenant only with Abraham as an adult? No, also with his descendants. For God said, to your descendants I give this land. And later God confirmed his covenant with Abraham and he says, I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Note that phrase, the God of your descendants. But simply the scripture is saying God is not just the God of Abraham, the God of adults only. No, he's also the God of Abraham's children. The God of his little ones. Young and old, they're all in covenant with him. 
But then notice as well, beloved, in the catechism, according to the scriptures, something else is added in that opening line. It has the word congregation. Now what does that do? And why does it do it? You might think that covenant and congregation are kind of synonymous, but, you know, they're not really. For to underlie the fact that children not only have a place in God's covenant, the catechism is saying they also have legal standing in God's congregation. Consider, for example, the great covenant renewal ceremonies that you find throughout the Scriptures. Who were present when the covenant was renewed? Who was entitled to be there? Who belonged there? Well, in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat leads the nation of Judah in sacred assembly. And who are there? It says, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. The whole community was there because the whole community, young and old, had standing with the Lord. Later on in 2 Chronicles 31, references made to genealogical records. And, and who were listed in those genealogical records? Verse 18 says that they included all the little ones. Again, they had legal rights. And you know, later still we come to the New Testament and a dispute arises between the Lord Jesus and his disciples about the status of children. And you may recall the disciples insisted that, that children do not belong, children have no standing, they shouldn't have access to the Lord, they're nothing much more than a nuisance. And what does the Lord Jesus say? Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In his eyes, they belong. They have standing. Yes, and I would add the Apostle Paul takes the same approach. He writes to the church in Ephesus and he addresses his letter to the saints in Ephesus. And who are among the saints? Why, the children. Because he writes and he says to the children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Also, children belong. They have both place and standing in the church and congregation of God. But then, beloved, if the children of believers enjoy membership in God's covenant and congregation, they also enjoy something else. They enjoy the promises of God. The Catechism says, through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Now, where does that assertion come from of the catechism? Well, more than anything else, it comes from Acts chapter 2. 
And you may remember that there on Pentecost Day, the Apostle Peter is preaching to Jews coming from all regions of the Mediterranean. And his preaching is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result of the work of the Spirit is that the preaching cuts into the hearts of his hearers. And in desperation they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's answer, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So to who belongs the promise of God, the promise centered on the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, why, to you and to your children. The promises of God in Christ are also for them. Yes, and because they are heirs to the promises, they also have a right to the sign of the promise. In the Old Testament, they had a right to the sign of circumcision. In the New Testament, they have a right to the sign of baptism. And why two different signs, you might wonder? Is there a difference in meaning between these two signs? No, beloved, they mean exactly the same thing. We've read together from Colossians 2. And if you read carefully, you hear that their circumcision and baptism are used interchangeably because they mean essentially the same thing. And so the difference between them is not in meaning. The difference between them is in terms of administration. For circumcision is a blood ceremony. Or if you will, a bloody rite. But then Jesus Christ came into the world in the fullness of time. And what did he do? Read Hebrews. He put an end to all sheddings of blood. A new covenant requires a new covenant sign. Baptism replaces circumcision. And so, beloved, the children of believers belong. Your children belong. They belong to God's covenant. They belong to God's congregation. They belong and they have God's promises. And they have the sign of God's promises. And so why then should they not be baptized. Taken together here is something so much more than baptism denied or baptism replaced with infant dedication. Here's baptism as God's sign 
and seal. As God's initiative, as God's call. You know how blessed we are as Christian parents when we realize and believe that in baptism, the covenant, the triune God is coming to our children. That in baptism, He's claiming them, He's separating them, setting them apart from the children of unbelievers and false religions, as it says in the confessions. And He's promising as father to adopt them, as the son to wash them, as the spirit to renew them, and to live in them always. Your children belong to God. Rejoice in His claim. Take comfort in His promises. And teach this diligently to your children. It will be for them a mighty incentive to believe in God. And to always live for His praise and glory. Imagine the mighty God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has laid His claim on my life, on my heart. That he should come to me with all of these promises and blessings. That all that I have to do is receive them with a believing heart. How's it possible? Oh, and if some of these children later on grow up and do not see anymore the blessings of God's covenant, do not disown them, Love them, pray for them, and make the most of the opportunities to remind them gently and humbly of the riches of God's covenant with His people. For truly He is the God of the generations. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you. We thank you that you call to yourself a people chosen to everlasting life. We thank you that you enter into covenant with your people. We thank you that you claim us young and old alike, that are not simply the adults here or the mature here or the able here who may claim and boast about your promises, that we all may do that. And may we do that in thankfulness every day. May the adults among us rejoice in these promises and teach the meaning of these promises to the children among us. And may we together as a community realize how blessed we are that God lives every day in fellowship with us as His people. And may we, Father, through the power of Your Spirit and Word, respond to all of these promises 
with a living face, a thankful face, a joyful face. Father, be with us and hear us and receive our thanks in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.